That's the sound of a day starting out right. I hear it every time my new Toro Z-Master 4000 Zero Turn starts up. With big-time horsepower, giant Voodoo track tires, TurboForce deck, and comforts like MyRide and USB ports, it's fully loaded to mow all day long while delivering that signature Toro cut. From start to finish, this beast means business. Get your Z-Master 4000 today. Toro. Count on it. Introducing the SND Podcast channel, your one-stop source for all types of podcasts. We are always on the look for new podcasts to join our channel. If there is any topic you would like to discuss, contact us now. We can be reached on all social media, such as Facebook, Twitter, and or Instagram. You can also contact us by email or leave us a voicemail at 516-570-9248. So make sure to contact us now so you can start your podcast soon. And now, a beauty production presents... The most awesome podcast to ever embrace a pair of headphones, Sarasso and the Beard. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Sarasso and Jose the Talking Beard Rivera. And welcome to Sarasso and the Beard podcast. We are back again. It's been a little while. I am Nick Sarasso. And I'm the Talking Beard, Jose Rivera. And Jose, it's, it's good to be back again. Yeah, it's really good. You know, it's, it's been a little bit of a while. Both of us very, very busy. Um, but it seems like every time we come together to do this podcast, there's always something to talk about. I think that's the great thing about sports. There's always debate. There's always something going on. So I'm pretty sure we're not going to have a limit of things to talk about here on this episode either. And let's mind everybody where we left off. When we did our last podcast, we had just about got into the NBA Finals. Uh, so obviously, spoiler alert, it ended. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, Warriors sweeping the Cleveland Cavaliers. But uh, I mean, a lot of people had this as a series that everyone expected. And we expected the Warriors to win in four games, possibly five at most. Uh, not a lot of people expected a great series. And I think, you know, the fans and NBA fans really got treated to something that was spectacular. First, J.R. Smith with uh, the most memorable play that we'll ever remember from the uh, that series. But overall, an extremely close game one, a very close game three. And when you talk about what the Cleveland Cavaliers had, I mean, th- that to me I think is a, a memorable part to it to begin with. But what was your take on the NBA Finals? Yeah, I mean, it's like what you said. It was pretty spectacular. And when it's all said and done, the Warriors are going down as a dynasty. I mean, when you think about it, Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, Draymond Green, they already have three rings together. I mean, there are some players who retire with none, and you've seen it. You know, guys like Charles Barkley never got to win a championship. But, you know, the fact that what we're witnessing here is that it's not just dominance by one team. It's beautifully played basketball, too. I think that's why a lot of people hate the Warriors because they say, oh, they're just a bunch of stars. But it's a lot of stars playing the game the right way. It's a lot of passing. It's a lot of touch and go. The more you know, the more hands on the ball. You know, the more shots are, are created. The shot selection. Steve Kerr is an amazing head coach as well too. So you can't take that away from him. So really, you know, when it's all said and done, the Warriors are a really, really great team that's playing really, really great basketball. And it's not just relying on the fact that they have a couple players. It was a pretty wild finals. I wouldn't have thought it would have ended in a sweep. I definitely thought the Cavaliers would have won at least at least one game. I thought they probably could have gotten um, the whole J.R. Smith was the debacle. But you know what? It's just it's pretty much the Cavaliers summed up in one season where they were good because obviously they had LeBron James, but they're not good enough to beat the Cavaliers, uh, to beat the Warriors, I should say, 
even when they made the trade for all those younger players, it's still not a team that's able to touch the Warriors. Um, and it's safe to say probably that no one's close to actually challenging the Warriors yet, at least from the Eastern Conference side. I think the Rockets could have had a chance if Chris Paul is healthy. You never know what could have happened in Game 6 or Game 7. Um, but for right now, the Warriors are still king of this league. Yeah, and it, this is a little bit different when it came to that series because you know Rocket fans can say if Chris Paul's healthy – most likely the Rockets are going to the NBA Finals. And it's a whole different scenario at that point. Because I do think the Cavaliers would have had a much better chance against the Houston Rockets. Uh, The Warriors just didn't look as impressive as they've been, and they still won the championship. But no one, no one's saying, you know, if J.R. Smith actually knew what the score was to a game, the Cleveland Cavaliers would have won this series. No, they would have won a game. Maybe they would have won two, possibly have a 2-1 lead going into game four, but no one's expecting them to come out, even in a 2-1 lead going into game four, possibly. No. It's unrealistic to think that the Cavaliers were going to win this series. But we look at the Warriors, and we consider them one of the greatest teams, the greatest team, certainly two of the top five players in the NBA. You can make the case for the top 15 or top 20 players in the NBA. Uh, When all said and done, Steph Curry and Kevin Durant would be two of the greatest of all time, if not Kevin Durant's already considered that. Uh, So this is a dynasty team on a whole nother level. But on the flip side, LeBron James, what he did in the playoffs, and I know most people are considering him to be better than Jordan or below Jordan, but where do you put him in that debate, especially after what you saw in his 15th season? Well, I think especially because it was in his 15th season, he's over the age of 30, and yet he's literally played every single game this year. He put this team on his back. You know I'm one of those guys, Nick, that say that Jordan is better, Um, but I I really think this is as close as it's come for me, that they're at equal level right now. I know you're going to knock me in. I know you're probably going to put LeBron even light years ahead of Jordan right now with this performance, but I will say that with LeBron James having a season that he's had, to me, he's finally entered that class of being compared to Michael Jordan and being just like Michael Jordan, if not maybe just a little bit better. Um, But again, you know, you can't knock what LeBron James did. Whether you love him or whether you hate him, you have to respect what he did on the court. Playing all 282 games is something that's just not heard of anymore. I mean, even with younger guys, they don't play 82 games because of minute restrictions or because of like guys like Joel Embiid where they're injury restrictions. You know, they don't want to hurt the player. They don't want to make him go out there and play all 82 games. Well, LeBron James is usually a guy that will rest a game or two. Definitely saw the importance this year of him playing every single game. It was like, hey, you can't afford to take me out of this game. If you take me out of the game, you know, the Cavaliers don't win. And so if LeBron James wasn't on, which he was, and they still didn't win, you know, the Cavaliers weren't going to go anywhere without LeBron James. And I really thought, you know, I'm not one, I'm not the person that will vote for LeBron James for MVP because, you know, obviously he's the MVP really every year and you have to spread the wealth. Um, and I did say I would vote for Jet for James Harden, but especially after thinking about it and after witnessing the finals and everything LeBron did in the finals and the playoffs, um, I think this was one of those years where LeBron probably should have won the MVP. Yeah, th- this is going to be interesting. I-, I don't want to get into the MVP yet. I, I know the award is out. James Harden won the MVP. We're certainly going to talk about that. Um, but you did. One of the things I will say is, is that you do know me very well. 
I, I do have LeBron James already multiple years uh, as the greatest of all time ahead of Michael Jordan. This, to me, is just another layer of many, many reasons why LeBron James is the greatest player of all time. And, again, mo- most people are going to tell me Sitsuno, Michael Jordan, where what LeBron is 3-6 and six now uh, in the finals. I'm, he's gotten there nine times. He's gotten there eight years in a row. Yeah, you're going to lose a couple. You're playing a team that probably nobody could beat. And LeBron's been able to beat them once. It's, to me, I'm looking at it, and of course he's going to lose a couple. And I think the only one I could ever fault LeBron James on when it comes to finals is the Dallas Mavericks. When he loses to Dallas in his first year with the Miami Heat. But, again, that part of it comes to he had nobody around him. He had Dwayne Wade, he had Chris Botch, but they had the worst bench in the entire NBA. So there's other reasons why you can lose a couple games and you can lose a series at times. But for me, no question, LeBron James uh, is the greatest of all time. I, I think even with the loss, it's I think it becomes more obvious for him almost that he has to put himself with the right players because what did they flip the roster how many times and they still get to the finals. You You lose Kyrie Irving this year and you still get to the finals so let's jump into that MVP idea because Chris Paul joins the Rockets Rockets win 65 games James Harden wins MVP and his numbers are phenomenal I'll tell them off to you right now he's the only the fourth player ever with 30 points per game on a 65 win team and all the previous players, Steph Curry, Michael Jordan's done it twice, and Dream Abdul Jabbar, all have won MVP. So it's following a currency on that, but do you think when half the lead mates the playoffs, more than half mate the playoffs, that we really shouldn't be looking at wins as the ultimate deciding factor between it, or should this be considered into the playoffs? Should we be factoring a little bit more than just the regular season for an MVP when it comes to the NBA? No, I, I like the idea of just looking at the regular season because if you're if you're going to use that argument, then Russell Westbrook doesn't win the MVP next last year. Um, you know, the Thunder didn't do anything. They got out in the first round of the playoffs. They were a six-seeded team, right? We ignored their win total to give it to a phenomenal player like Russell Westbrook. So I think that does happen occasionally. I think in this scenario, I think LeBron James just gets hurt a little bit by being LeBron James. When you're the best player every year, it's the same thing in baseball with Mike Trout. When you're the best player every single year and there's no one that can touch you, you're not going to win the award every single year because the league feels like they need to spread the wealth and they need to feel like they need to give other people a chance. I'm fine with them looking at the regular season because you can look at regular stats within the regular season. If you compare the stats side by side, between the Rockets and the, not the Rockets and Cavaliers, but between James Harden and LeBron James, LeBron James' numbers are better. Plus, LeBron James played a full season. James Harden missed 10 games this year. That, to me, also gets factored in, too. So I don't think the NBA is looking at wins and losses. I think you're looking at a league that can't really muster up and give it to LeBron James every single year. So they look to give it to other people. Uh, let me ask you this, though. Are, are we looking at stats the wrong way when it comes to the NBA? So, James Harden averaged 
30.4 points per game, 8.8 uh, assists, 5.4 rebounds per game. LeBron James averages 27.5 points and 9.1 assists and 8.6 rebounds. So uh, just looking at that on the standpoint, LeBron James had less points per game. He had more assists. He had more rebounds. But LeBron James played 10 more games than James Harden. LeBron James had way worse players. And he finishes the season when we look at other sports like baseball. We don't look at how many RBIs they average per game. We look at how many RBIs they had for the entire season. In the NFL, we don't look at how many passing yards Tom Brady threw per game. We look at, oh, did he throw 4,000 or 4,500? Did he reach 5,000? So why is it when we go to the NBA, we're only looking at the average per game and we're not looking at the total numbers because the total numbers truly put LeBron James as the best player for the season. Yeah, I mean, I have them right here in front of me, too. I mean, in terms of points, LeBron had 2,251. James Harden had 2,191. Rebounds alone, LeBron had 709. James Harden had 389. And I know you're wondering, well, LeBron's, of course, going to rebound more. James Harden is in the backcourt. But even when it comes to assists, LeBron James, 747. James Harden, 630 on the year. And then, of course, what I like to look at is field goal percentage. 54.2% for LeBron James, 449 for James Harden literally making less than half of his shots. LeBron making more than half of his shots. And then, of course, as you said, 82 games versus 72. And that's a really interesting point. When we talk about baseball, when we talk about football, we talk about everything, not just one game. But for basketball, it's because you're looking at how many he gives you in one game. So it does get a little bit confusing because I don't want to know how many points he scored overall. I want to know how many points does he give me on an average night. But that, to me, is more if I'm evaluating a player for what I want for my team as opposed to an MVP status. So I think people do fall victim of looking at what they give you on a nightly basis as to what they gave you for the entire season. Yeah, and again, I'm, I, if I had a vote, LeBron would have been getting my vote. And 15 out of, the, I think, the 101 voters put LeBron James first. And to me, I think there's just not enough reason where I could see, what, not even 20% reaching a consensus that, hey, LeBron James had a better season than James Harden. Because the 10 games that they missed, did they really lose those games without James Harden? No, they, they won. They were fine. They had three players of Twin Compeller, James Harden, and Chris Paul. What was the stat like? They were 50-5 and for the season at one point. Or it might have been even higher than that when the three of them played at the same time. So clearly he has the right guys around him. You're going to get the wins. You're you're going to get to like 50, 60 wins on the year. So I, I don't think it's enough of a reason. And it becomes more almost the lines of like that Mike Trout issue. Give me a reason, whether it's... Good enough or not, but give me something on why LeBron James can't be the MVP. And I feel that's the voters go in that route than voting for the true best player. So you looked at LeBron though, because I know we're going to continue because LeBron is going to take over the summer until he pits a team. 
If you're LeBron James, what are you considering right now? Well, I think if you're LeBron James, you know, he's going to tell you, obviously, all cards are on the table. He might stay in Cleveland. But I think the realistic possibility is, you know, I think he's leaving Cleveland. I don't think it, there's, there's no doubt about it. Um, I don't feel like Cleveland's priority anymore is to win a championship. I really feel like the Cleveland Cavaliers organization, you know, they got their championship and they're very, very sat- satisfied with that. You know what I mean? They broke the record, right? No Cleveland sports team has won in X amount of years. They were the first one to do that. And it really is a shame because when you have a player like LeBron James, you have a chance to build a team that can last for a little while because LeBron's not going anywhere. As far as I'm concerned, LeBron's not slowing down. He's not retiring anytime soon. He looks as good as ever in his 15th season, as you said. So the Cavaliers, to me, really blew a chance to try and and rebuild their team here by not really getting the right players when it's all said and done. Now, for LeBron James, I understand you know he does live in Cleveland. That is his hometown. But I think what LeBron James should do is not necessarily chase rings anymore obviously he's always going to compete obviously he might have to face the warriors again and when it's all said and done but if you're lebron james i feel i feel like you really need to make the you merely need to make the decision of what's best for you and your family i know he has a home in la you know maybe it's lebron's goal to always play in la maybe he wants to team up with magic johnson i think for the first time in a while lebron james can sit back and say i don't need to go to a team or create a team that has the best chance to win i just want to do what makes me happy. The good news is is that any team that LeBron goes to automatically has a chance to win. So if that team can put pieces around him, he can definitely go for another final shot and add on more to his legacy. But he doesn't certainly need to win anymore to prove anything to anybody. Um, so it's going to be very interesting to see what he decides to do. I don't know where he's going to end up going. I have some guesses. But if you ask me, he's definitely not back in Cleveland next year. I, I look at it and say, what does Cleveland have to offer him? Kevin Love, Colin Setson, so, and basically the same roster. The roster that just needs LeBron James to do every single thing, every single night. And if LeBron has a single off night, you lost. And, and to just survive the Eastern Conference, a conference that we do consider weaker, Granted, Boston should be getting better this year. The 76ers should be getting better this year. But overall, I mean, we're not looking at Toronto as ever posing a threat. We're not looking at some of these other teams ever really getting there. And he still has to put up 40 to 50 points a night to give his team a chance to win. And they're winning by, what, three in that game against the Pacers? the Cavaliers are not his choice and shouldn't be. And he's won his championship that I think Cleveland Cavalier fans aren't going to like if he leaves, but I think we'll understand it a bit more than when he did it the first time. So that's really the question. Do you try and chase championships? Do you try and just put yourself in a great scenario of something that you're comfortable with in your final couple of years? And for me, I think it's still LeBron James feels that he can go out and win championships. And I think he might be just feeling he's a player or two shy or just a roster difference. And I do think the Lakers are a great opportunity for him or maybe the Houston Rockets. Uh, there are different options for him because we've already seen that LeBron James alone gets you to the NBA Finals. LeBron James alone 
gets you within a couple minutes of beating the Golden State Warriors, you don't need much around them to get the win further than that. So for me, I think he's just going to choose whatever team he thinks is best to beat the Warriors. And that and at the moment, that's not the Lakers unless you consider them adding guys like Paul George or maybe a Kawhi Leonard or both. But it's certainly going to be interesting on where he's going to choose is, in my mind, it's going to be what he thinks is the best chase to beat the Golden State Warriors. Because I think that's his mindset and he's locked into that because he, I don't think he gets credit enough for that killer instinct like a Kobe or Michael Jordan because he has the willingness to pass the last shot for a better opportunity. But I think he's got always that killer instinct of wanting to win and wanting to win a championship. He's just runs into really good teams at times. For one of the other free agents, Paul George, where do you look to see him go? Well, for Paul George, I think there's really only one destination for him, and that's actually to the L.A. Lakers. Um, I don't know if the Lakers are going to end up getting both LeBron and Paul George, but I do know that the Lakers will land Paul George. You know, maybe there's a possibility he goes back to OKC, but let's cut the crap. Paul George wants to go home, right? This has been building up for the past couple of years. And, And don't get me wrong, I think he will sit there and he will listen to OKC you know, Carmelo Anthony exercises options, so maybe they can get back together and try and make this work the second time around. They weren't a terrible team. It just, you know, it took them a really long time to get on the same page between that team. And, you know, and if Paul George is in OKC, they are a contender. They already are with Russell Westbrook. But if you're Paul George, you have a chance to go home and bring a championship back to your city to make your city relevant again. Because let's face it, Lakers are still pretty popular. But, I mean, when's the last time we actually respected the purple and gold? since Kobe Bryant left. And even when Kobe Bryant was there, the Lakers weren't getting much respect because they weren't going anywhere. Paul George has an opportunity to do what LeBron James did, right, when he went back to Cleveland, to go back home and win a championship for your city. I'm not saying if Paul George goes there, they win a championship. No, they still have more work to do. But I think the first piece for the Lakers being back to a relevant basketball team, other than just being the Lakers, relevant as in winning, is to make sure Paul George lands in their lap, and I think Paul George does go there. Yeah, this is I, obviously Michael um, Magic Johnson's extremely confident that uh, the Lakers are going to land someone. He came out, and I think the report was, "I'll step down if we don't ha- uh, land big free agents in 2018 or 2019." So he's he's expecting free agents to come. And although you have Lonzo Ball, and there can be iffy factors when you come to that, he, Lonzo Ball is still a good point guard outside of trying to score. Kyle Kuzman can be, a, a, was what, a first-team rookie. Brandon Ingram played extremely well when he was healthy. Julius Randle, power forward. So there's not much that they're they're truly missing. They are missing that superstar-type player like a LeBron James, like a Paul George. Uh, they could go a route of adding a lot of different pieces. Uh, this is a very interesting summer for the Lakers, and... It is not a bad thing for the NBA if the Los Angeles Lakers, the Golden State Warriors, and the Boston Celtics are, you know, three of the best teams in the league. It is it is a huge moment for the NBA if you can get a lot of major cities in the NBA, and this is currently going on now because 
Los Angeles looks relevant again. Boston is relevant. The Sitzers are relevant. There's major cities right now that can take over, and it's a great moment for the NBA. And I, I do expect some big free agents to hit Los Angeles, and that could be a Paul George or a LeBron James combination. Uh, so I, I, I like Paul George going to the Lakers as well. It'd be He's wanted to go to the Lakers, what, for the last three years it's been known? So this is something that I think the Lakers kind of expect and are kind of hoping for, and I think Laker fans really want to see it happen because you know, they're season ticket holders and they want to be in the playoffs as well. Uh, one other big NBA star before we get into the draft uh, from last week, Kawhi Leonard. You know, it, it seems like we're talking more about Kawhi and not being on a basketball court, but just a lot of personal issues with the San Antonio Spurs. And, I mean, if you're, let's go with the organization first. If you're the Spurs, what should be the game plan? If you're the Spurs, your game plan should be to get rid of Kawhi Leonard. I mean, this is, you know, this is also a no-brainer situation. The guy doesn't want to be here. The guy clearly has issues after he puts on this the smokescreen character of I'm not a guy who complains. I'm extremely humble. Turns out he's a giant crybaby, uh, honestly. And I don't think the Spurs should change to cater to Kawhi Leonard. Now, yes, you know, I, and, and in a way, it's kind of messed up because they paid Kawhi Leonard a bunch of money to be the face of this team. So what do you do? Do you continue to spend more money to make him happy and to make sure that he doesn't go anywhere? I don't like that idea. The guy has already expressed interest in wanting to leave. And I'm a big fan of if you don't want to be here, then there's a door. And I think the Spurs might be doing themselves a favor if they get rid of Kawhi Leonard and maybe go through a little bit of a rebuilding phase. But the truth is, if you trade Kawhi Leonard, you could get a lot back for him. So you're not setting yourself back tremendously if you get, you know, if you do deal Kawhi. Now, here's the thing. Where do you send them to now? Because a lot of teams that could afford and put up trade value is in the Western Conference, and we know that the Spurs do not want to trade within the Western Conference. So really, to me, there's only two landing spots for Kawhi Leonard, and that's one, the Boston Celtics, which I don't know if the Boston Celtics would be willing to part ways with a lot of the younger players for Kawhi, and two, the Philadelphia 76ers. Now, I think if Kawhi went to the 76ers, you're looking at a very, very scary team of Ben Simmons, Kawhi Leonard, Joel Embiid, Add that with the role players they have in Covington, Markel Fultz maybe, or maybe Fultz will be included in the trade for Kawhi. But I think either one of those teams are the only two teams that the Spurs can actually match up with and trade him to. But if you're the Spurs, step one, you have to get rid of Kawhi Leonard. This is a giant distraction. He's a cancer to the team. And, you know, it's a shame to say cause Kawhi Leonard's one of my favorite players because I like how humbled he was and how he went about his business. But, you know, you can't keep someone like that on this team who already has made a negative influence on this basketball team, which really is one of the most respected teams in the NBA. And I think a big reason why, like, you feel this way is because I, I don't want to use, like, a cancer to the team. Because uh, that's certainly not how I view Kawhi Leonard. But it's almost like if you express the interest of not wanting to be there, you're not putting in the right team chemistry with your remaining players on your team so i think is that a big reason why you feel the spurs should be looking to trade them yeah i mean definitely a bit you know it's 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 one of those things where it's like again the guy has already made it clear he doesn't want to be here so for the spurs to move forward 
and I don't think you should cater to one guy's needs because he makes an ultimatum. I mean, I don't, I'm not convinced that the guy was hurt all year long, so the Spurs should trade him just to start fresh and start over. And on Kawhi's standpoint, from the player's idea, you've expressed interest of wanting to leave, but obviously there's a lot of distrust between Kawhi Leonard and the San Antonio Spurs organization. But then on a, a teammate standpoint, you have guys like Tony Parker and Mono Ginobili saying like they're able to get back from their injuries much faster than Kawhi Leonard. And do you feel like you're wanted by the Spurs and by the Spurs teammates? Or do you feel like you want to, uh, you want to even exit because you just need a new environment to begin with? Nah, if you're Kawhi Leonard, I think you definitely already packed your bags and marked the door. Um, you know, it got to the point where guys like Tony Parker are calling you out and calling you out about your injuries. I don't think Kawhi Leonard's welcomed in that locker room of the veteran coaching staff. I know the management wants to meet with him. I know Popovich wants to meet with him. But when it's all said and done, the players play a giant factor in that too. And you can't tell me LaRarcus Aldridge, who's been – sitting there, biding his time, you know, working around Kawhi and the Spurs game plan, um, you know, who's been sitting there patiently. Kawhi goes down, Aldridge gets, gets the ball now, and LaMarcus Aldridge looks like the Mar- LaMarcus Aldridge of old and has a great season. You can't tell me he's okay with somebody coming back who clearly doesn't want to be on the team and says that he needs more superstars, ignoring the fact that Aldridge is there. Yeah, I, I, I think for Kawhi, it's you want to go and it's – I think for the Spurs it's challenging because if Kawhi Leonard leaves, do you see the Spurs having a possibility of competing in the Western Conference this season? I know he was practically gone all season, but we never really considered the Spurs to be a relevant team in the playoffs, and they were the only team in, I think, their division uh, to be knocked out uh, outside of the one division that contained like Minnesota, OKC, I think like the Jazz and everything. They were the one uh, team that didn't play one of those divisions to get knocked out first round. So do you see the Spurs as a a team of relevance or a team that can compete without Kawhi Leonard? You know, I think so. Because even with Kawhi Leonard out the last year, a lot of other people were hurt too. Tony Parker was gone for a great amount of time. And I know you're going to say it's just Tony Parker. But Tony Parker still plays an influence on this team. You know, Um, LaMarcus Aldridge did miss some time too, but he had a great season. And I do think that if they trade Kawhi Leonard, they're not just going to trade him for future picks. They're going to trade him for something that can help them now, too. And I think whoever you trade him to is going to give you back a good value back in return to help you still compete. And also, two words, Nick, of why the Spurs will always be relevant. Greg Popovich. And again, that guy is a coaching mastermind. He can take water and turn it into wine. And I think the Spurs will be just fine even without Kawhi Leonard. Will they struggle a little bit? Yes. Will they be a top three, four team in the Western Conference? Probably not. But... You're going to get something back for Kawhi Leonard that's going to help you and put the Spurs back on top and get them in better shape than they are now with a disgruntled disgruntled player on their team, which is not something you're used to on the Greg Popovich team. Yeah, I I think this is this is possibly going to be the the start of the end for the Spurs if they were to trade Kawhi Leonard. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't. I I think the the right move is to trade him because what he's a free agent in a year from now. He's not staying. And I think that becomes pure obvious. And at that point, you have to try and get the most for him. And, you know, you're, you're 
what you can get in return isn't going to be that high if most play, uh, teams view him as a rental. And I think this becomes the interesting part because if Paul George is to sign with the Lakers, let's just say, before Kawhi Leonard gets traded, I think that should be red alert to every single team in the NBA that wants to trade for Kawhi Leonard. Because Paul George came out with the same thing when he was still a Pacer, that he wants to be a Laker, he gets traded to the Thunder, and then a year later, if he joins the Lakers, what is every other team in the league going to do? If Boston wants to trade for Kawhi Leonard, they're going to know that you know there's a 99% possibility that he's leaving us in a year, so we're not going to give up that much for him. So I think for the Spurs standpoint, it would be smarter to trade Kawhi Leonard before Paul, because of worst case scenario, Paul George signs with the Lakers, I think it becomes even lower of an opportunity to uh, get more value for Kawhi Leonard. But as far as the Spurs, they finished 47-35 and 35 last season. Seventh in the Western Conference. Granted, a game difference between seventh and fourth in the Western Conference, but a game difference between seventh and ninth. And the Nuggets looked better. The Clippers finished over 500 without Blake Griffin. The Los Angeles Lakers finished 35 and 47. But mind you, if they were to get like a LeBron James or a Paul George, they should be a playoff team that could affect just one team, which is OKC. So, you know, I, I really view the Spurs almost on the outside sitting in because I, I think this is going to be the. Last season was pretty much the high point because it should be the falling point from now on. And it's partly because of the fact that superstars are different nowadays. Tim Duncan was real quiet. Tony Parker was real quiet. Manu Ginobili was real quiet. They were in that organization from the start, but it's different nowadays. You're more, uh, I don't want to say like chatty, but it's more you can make your own decisions. More you can choose where you want to go. You have the options to sign elsewhere. You have the options to say where you want to go. And I think that becomes out of Greg Popovich's hands. And that's something he's not used to. So, Jose, last week, NBA draft. Obviously, a lot of big names. But one that stood out to me was Michael Porter Jr. He falls all the way to 14th to the Denver Nuggets. And for the Nuggets, I think they should be looking at this as a great steal. But what is your first take on Michael Porter Jr.? We're going to cover a few different players from that draft. Yeah, it's one of those things where I'm shocked, but I'm also not surprised. Obviously, I think Michael Porter was one of the most talented people in this draft. But I'm also not surprised either with the information about his back. You know, no one really knows how serious his back injury is. Now you're hearing reports that he might be out for the entire year. So for a lot of teams, they want to take a flyer. They didn't want to change on a guy who may who may have continuing back problems all his career. And again, that's a major, major issue. You know, a back injury is something that can linger for a long time. And you don't want to draft a player that you're only going to get four or five years out of instead of 10 or 12 like you could get with some of these other players. And, and you never know. Injuries happen and you know, to anybody. But I certainly do understand why teams were not willing to take a flyer on him. But there were some teams that passed up on him 
like the Knicks that I thought definitely could have taken a chance on him. So am I surprised that he fell to 15? Definitely. But I'm also kind of not surprised that so many teams passed on him because, again, this injury could be so serious and we still know very little about it that we just don't know when it comes to Michael Porter Jr. Yeah, this is this was strange because it goes as expected in the very beginning. Uh, DeAndre Ayton played for Arizona, lived in Phoenix, uh, lived in Arizona. Perfect fit for the Suns. It, it continues and it makes sense. There's a couple of, maybe this guy's slightly better than this one. But as far as the top eight go, there's not too much of a surprise. And then the New York Knits come out. And it should be, in my opinion, the easiest pit they've ever made. You select Michael Porter Jr. And with all the back issue question marks, what do you have to risk? Because let's play the Knits role for a moment. Uh, is Porzingis starting the season? No. He's still going to be hurt. Are the Knits going to make it to the playoffs this year? No. No, Knits fans. It's another year of waiting. But you know what you can't wait still on? Another guy, like Michael Porter. Because if he is hurt, okay, take another six months off. We're, we're not competing this year, not with our two top players that we're supposed to have not healthy right now. So we have all the time in the world. It seems like too perfect of a fit. And I'm sure this is going to backfire on the Knits. I'm, I know there was a ton of boos la- uh, when it came to Porzingis' pit. And it seems like, oh, because everyone booed. No, th- this was just a more obvious pit of what the Knits should have. Because if Michael Porter Jr. is healthy, he's a top three pit in the draft. Easily a top three pit in the draft. And at nine, that's a great steal. At nine, that's a great risk at nine. Nine, even though there's health questions, it's worth it. Because you're in the top ten. You're not getting a top five pitch. No one's really going to fall outside to you that far except Michael Porter Jr. and you don't make that pitch. So, Jose, let me ask you another big guy that really gets talked a lot about. And he wasn't number one. He wasn't number two. But he was traded in the draft, and that's Trey Young. Trey Young drafted by the Dallas Mavericks, but traded to the Atlanta Hawks. Do you see him having a lot of success with the Hawks? What do you see him as a type of player as? Uh, you know, when it comes to Trey Young, it's very, very interesting. I think you're looking at a player that can either be really, really good in the NBA, or you're looking at a player that could be a complete bust, honestly. I feel like he's one of those guys where he left college too early. I think he really could have benefited from some more time playing in college and stuff like that. And I just don't like either fit for him, honestly, on either team. If he would have stayed with Dallas, maybe it would have been a little bit better. Him and Dennis Smith Jr. in that backcourt, I like that combination just a little bit better. But now being traded to the Hawks, you know, this is still a team that doesn't really know what direction they're going in. They were talking about possibly entertaining orders for um, entertaining, you know, trades for Schroeder if they found the right one. And again, I just don't think the Hawks have a clear direction. And I don't think that that's a team that Trey Young needs. Trey Young needs to be on the team that knows where they're going, has a game plan for the future, and a point guard that can really help him out and elevate his game. And I think Dennis Smith Jr. is that point guard as opposed to Dennis Schroeder. So I really would have liked if the Mavericks would have kept Trey Young. Um, but to me, I think Trey Young is actually going to hurt a little bit by going to the Hawks. 
And I think one of the challenges for Trey Young is he didn't really have anyone around him in the supporting cast. And it seems like the Knits are uh, not the Knits, the um, really the Knits do, but uh, the Atlanta Hawks don't really have much around him. Ken Bazemore, uh, like you said, Dennis Schroeder, but it's not much. And I mean, that's tough for a guy like Trey Young to lean towards, rely on. And I mean, he's coming to Atlanta and, I mean, expectations are going to be high, and he's going to be expected to do a lot for this team very early on. I feel like this can be a lot of chances for early failure more than success at times. And, you know, one of the big things also stood out to me that didn't have to deal with the draft player, though. Uh, Well, two. We'll get into one, which is Ben Simmons won Rookie of the Year. Do you think they have to change that, though? Uh, ben Simmons, who sat out the entire year uh, prior and then played this year, wins Rookie of the Year over guys like Donovan Mitchell and Jason Tatum. Or do you think that it should just be that first-year eligibility and then forget about it? Yeah, I mean, I really think it should be that first-year eligibility and forget about it. There's no reason to me why Ben Simmons wins Rookie of the Year. You are not a rookie. And I, and I get it. He never played any minutes. Yeah, but you still sat on an NBA bench for the entire year. You were there. You were breathing. You have a pulse. <laughs> you were a rookie in the NBA, in my opinion. You know, same thing happened when Blake Griffin won instead of John Wall. You know, it's not – I get it. You haven't played a game. But guess what? It's no one's fault that you got hurt too. You know, you were hurt the entire year. You got hurt which means that's on your responsibility. That's no one else's fault that you got hurt and you missed the entire season. And there was a point last year where Ben Simmons probably could have came back, but the 76ers decided to hold him out for the rest of the year because they want to take precautionary reasons. So it's double the you know disrespect that you didn't play because your team decided they didn't want you to play. That, to me, is not the right move. That, to me, you know that's your rookie year. Your first year, while you're getting paid, is your rookie season. And to me, I would have voted Donovan Mitchell... I think Donovan Mitchell had a way bigger impact on the Jazz than Simmons had on the 76ers. And the whole thing really made me angry. But yes, I do think we need to change it. I think your first year is your first year. It doesn't matter if you played a minutes or you didn't play any minutes. Your first year is your first year. And Donovan Mitchell should have been Rookie of the Year. And again, because Jason Tatum had a strong showing too. And he ends up in third place. And... I mean, what's not He may have been hurt. He may have been sitting on the bench. But you know what he also is doing? He's practicing with an NBA team for an entire year. So, like you said, he it wasn't game like ready the year prior. But he certainly was practicing. He, he certainly was shooting around. He certainly was spending his entire year working out. He's, it, so there was. A lot he was doing that no other player was able to do because they were still in college. Uh, so I think there was a clear advantage to that, but uh, no one's going to deny that his stats are better. It's just more that we're going to deny the fact that like you're a rookie because most people don't consider him that. And I agree, you really have a tough time considering him a rookie the same way. I think it's tough to consider... A guy like Shohei Otani, a rookie, when he was playing professional baseball in Japan for years. Other guys playing the minor leagues, okay, but I mean, minor leagues is 
sort of like professional baseball in Japan, but it, it is a step up in, in certain ways. So, I mean, th- there's mixed motions on that one, but you're certainly playing a much larger crowd in Japan for a professional team than you are playing for, like, I don't know, the Trenton Thunder. So you're you're not going to get that uh, same views. You're not going to get that same like, instance, and it's it's much different. Uh, so I agree with you that he's more, you know, he won Rookie of the Year, but he really wasn't a rookie either. Uh, but let's talk about your team now. We talked about the Nets. We talked about the Lakers. The Brooklyn Nets traded for Dwight Howard, and, you know, 10 years ago this is would have been the biggest thing talked about on the NBA when Howard was the top five player, but for Dwight Howard, what does that look at for his character standpoint and the player he is? He's what joining his fourth team in the last four years. What is it your take on that? Well, it's actually pretty funny because you know the Brooklyn Nets get Dwight Howard, and all of a sudden you're thinking, "Yay!" You know, Brooklyn has a chance to be good again. This is a good player to mix with the good role players that they have. And then they buy him out too, or they're working on a buyout. The last time I heard, so really, it's his fourth team, and yet he's going to probably be on another team when it's all said and done because the Nets don't have any plans on keeping him. Um, so it is kind of sad because this is a guy that you know was being advertised as Superman of the NBA and stuff like that. And, and honestly, he. Um, uh, you know, it's one of those things where it's like he was at one point he was one of the good guys of the NBA, right? Everybody liked Dwight Howard, and you wonder to yourself what the hell happened that teams don't want any part of him. I think it really is Dwight Howard's own fault, though. Dwight Howard is very selfish on the basketball court, and we're in a time now in the NBA where the center doesn't do as much as they used to. The center really only rebounds now or gets fed from the point guard occasionally. I think Dwight Howard is that guy that constantly needs the ball in his hand. And, you know, just most systems revolve around the point guard these days. So for Dwight Howard, if he really wants to stick around on one team, I think, one, he probably needs to take a pay cut wherever he goes. And two, he also needs to change his game to cater to the style of NBA that's played now. Yeah, that style is completely different. And that's part of the reason Steph Curry has changed the lead. It's a a three-point shooting game. Look at guys like Porzingis, Marcus the players coming into the lead now. They're all three-point shooters. Guys like Dwight Howard, where it's, okay, great defense, a great rebounder, can barely hit a foul shot, can hit a three. That's That's a dying breed. There are not many guys like that in the NBA right now. It's basically him and what? I... Clippers, it, there's there's nothing along that line that says this is how you're going to win in the NBA. And added to the fact of, like you said, that there's that selfish attitude for Dwight Howard. There's that character questions. There's, there's issues among him and other star players for the last three teams that he's gone to. It certainly raises a lot of red flags and I guess the only silver lining for the Nets is that they don't have any star players for him to collide with. Sorry, Jose, I had to take that shot there. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about, uh, and now let's go into football for a moment. And Julian Edelman, we're not going to talk about Janaris Jenkins and uh, the apparently dead body that was found in his basement. I. I um, we're not going to jump into that one yet. I feel like I'm going to give that a little bit more details and our police report before we really jump into that one. 
Uh, but Julian Edelman suspended four games for PEDs and is now appealing it, saying that you know it got handled the wrong way by the NFL and how it was all taking place on. And the drug that he was suspended for apparently wasn't even like on the drug tested list that it that it was off the list. So it's it's very questionable and obviously it's going to become the NFL always seems to bait where it's the New England Patriots say the NFL and Roger Goodell hates us if the four game suspension will get upheld and if it does get removed because of how this was handled in the wrong way then it will be the other 31 team fan base saying it's the NFL catering to the New England Patriots and those cheaters so let's start with this one Jose it it has a lot of feel like the Ryan Braun moment in the MLB so for Julian Edelman, I mean, he's got all right to fight this, and he certainly, if it's handled in the wrong way, he could certainly get a game or two or the entire thing knocked off. But will it change your mindset on Julian Edelman, and do you see it getting knocked off, this suspension? Well, hold on. First of all, don't compare it to Ryan Braun, because Ryan Braun literally lied about a lot of things. It got the pee collector fired. I mean, when your job is to collect pee... <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you get fired and you get hassled by millions of people because one athlete decided to lie about using performance enhancing drugs. Totally different scenario. But going back to Julian Edelman, um, you know, I'm not usually I don't usually defend people that get caught for, for drugs or whatever and then get suspended. But in this scenario, if the drug is not on the list, can you really suspend them? Can you suspend them for something that technically is not illegal to do? And that's when you start getting caught in these kind of things. And I think the NFL has to play by the rules, right? They won't rules too if the substance is not on the list then you cannot suspend them for it i think that's it i think flat out that's what it needs to be and certainly edelman needs to be careful when he does this but you know at some point you have to fight for your right right like if it's not on the list why should you be suspended and i think it just goes to a a player's right sort of thing when it's all said and done even if edelman gets what one or two games it's the fact that you know, something is written in the contract, and if I didn't violate anything, then I shouldn't be penalized for it. Uh, it's certainly going to be, I think it's tough for me on this because, um, you know, what's really the big thing is how the NFL handled it. Because if they, if it's that they didn't handle it in the right way, I would want all four teams knocked off. And I don't want to see Roger Dell only say, oh, because of that, we're going to take one. Or, oh, we'll knock off two. No, no. Your protocol system that's in place to handle this didn't handle it properly. Then there's nothing that's said about this. That's it. Case over. Suspension done. And I think that's that's really just it for me. Uh, because, you know, if you tested positive for something, something's clearly there. But if you tested positive for something and everything got handled wrong. I mean, we we live in a system like that where there is that change. And everything must be handled correctly. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it for that standpoint and really only that standpoint because that's 
really sometimes how the NFL really needs to change its policies because it, it does feel like a dictatorship and a tyranny by Roger Goodell. Uh, and I think every NFL player kind of feels that way. So this is really how it it can only be. And, you know, one of the things is we're getting closer to the football season. So thank God for that. <laughs> we need a bat. I don't need any more stories about who looks good training camp. Yeah, I, I don't really care who's skipping training camp or Tom Brady hasn't been there or maybe Tom Brady's considering retirement at 43 instead of 45 or 48. Just play. Uh, but let's go into baseball. And this is really something I've seen a lot lately. So I want to ask you this, Tristan. Mike Trout. We know he's the greatest player. We know he's having a phenomenal, phenomenal season. And that's an understatement. A week ago, he was hitting 684 in like a 10-game span. He's just hes the most dominant player in the game. He leads the lead in, I think, home runs, runs stored. It just plenty of stats. And a couple articles are coming out, and it's comparing... Mike Trout 2018 season to Barry Bonds 2001 season and Babe Ruth's I think like 1914 season or the year he hit 60 home runs. Should we be comparing these years? Because this is this is what a dead ball error of over almost 100 years ago with Babe Ruth, a steroid ever with a steroid player in Barry Bonds, and Mike Trout. So, Jose, should we look and compare three different types of errors? You know, um, that's a very interesting take, like you just said. I'm okay with comparing him and Babe Ruth because we're not calling them the same kind of player because they're not, right? Babe Ruth is a totally different kind of player <clears throat> in a totally different era of baseball compared to Mike Trout. But I think what we need to look at is the impact that they have had on their eras. Babe Ruth has had a huge impact on the era that he was playing in as Mike Trout was revolutionizing the game of baseball, right? You can arguably say that Mike Trout is the founding father of sabermetric baseball. Because when we talk about sabermetrics, our, often our example is Mike Trout. And he's revolutionizing the game like Babe Ruth did back then. The one that I do have a problem with is the one where Barry Bonds. Even though he had a huge impact on his era of baseball, to a guy like Trout plays the game the right way, as far as we know. I would be heartbroken if he didn't. But, you know, we're comparing a cheater compared to a, a good era of baseball right now where people are being caught and penalized if they do get, uh, you know, if they do cheat. So I'm okay with comparing the three as long as we look at the impact and not try and call them the same player because they're not all the same player. And it is different eras of baseball. But I am okay with magnifying that they both, all three of them, did have an impact on their respective era. Oh, yeah, they, they all had a huge impact. They're three of the greatest players, and Mike Trout is just beginning his career when you consider that. So I'm not a fan of comparing it uh, because, I mean, we're also comparing one guy who hit the most home runs in a single season that probably will never get broken, another guy who hit, 60 home runs in a single season and less games played. Uh, a whole different error in and of itself between the two. 
it, it doesn't it doesn't make sense to compare. Yeah, you know, it's one thing to compare uh, Mike Trout to Miguel Cabrera. It's one thing to compare Mike Trout to Albert Pujols. It, it's one thing to compare Mike Trout to like a Ken Griffey. But it gets really iffy for me when you start comparing it to guys with PD question marks. Um, you know, I, I love the Mike Trout comparisons to the Mickey Mantles, to the Hank Aaron, uh, to Willie Mays. I think that one speaks out a lot more, and it's it's a bit more current than going all the way in the past to Babe Ruth. Because at that point, there was only one guy able to hit the home run, uh, only one guy able to produce phenomenal stats. So I'm looking at it like that, and, and it's just it's tough to compare Mike Trout because of everything he does, and. His stats are nowhere near comparable to when it comes to Babe Ruth and Barry Bonds in those years. And it can be a factor of the era that Babe Ruth played in and the performance-enhancing drugs that Barry Bonds had. I won't deny Barry Bonds from 2001 to 2004 might have had the greatest like four-year stretch in the history of baseball. But I'm not going to lie that they might need a little bit of an asterisk near it. So it's a double-edged sword for me. I don't really think that we should be comparing my Trout to all these other players because it, it feels like the LeBron James thing. Give me a reason where we have to one-up Mike Trout. And that's what baseball has done these last few years. He's the greatest player in the in the MLB right now by far. It's not even close. It is him miles ahead of everybody else. Let's just enjoy it. Lastly, Jose, I'm going to give you a couple names, or even if you want to give me a couple names of players that you think are going to get dealt before the trade deadline in the MLB. So let me throw a couple out there, and if you think they're going to get traded, and where they would get traded to. So let's start with two Baltimore Orioles players. Manny Machado and Adam Jones. What's the chances either one of these players gets traded? That's funny because I actually have a name from the Baltimore Orioles, but it's neither of those two, Nick. I don't think Manny Machado gets traded. I don't think Adam Jones gets traded. Manny Machado only because I don't think they'll find a right fit for him. Um, I don't know how many teams are going to be knocking on a door asking for Machado knowing that he's leaving at the end of the year. This guy is a pure rental He's ticketed for the Bronx. He wants to be a Yankee. He's made that clear. He's going to be a Yankee in 2019. So if you're a team that trades for Machado, are you okay with him being a half-year player for your team, knowing that he's leaving? I don't think the Orioles can get a lot back in return for him because of that reason. And I don't think the Orioles, excuse my language here, I don't think the Orioles have the balls to actually trade Machado, a franchise player of that magnitude, because they know they're not going to get a lot back for him. They're worried that whatever team they were going to trade him to, and remember in the offseason, they said that they were worried that any team they trade him to was going to trade him to the Yankees. I think the Orioles are really paranoid when it comes to Machado going to the Yankees. We all know it's going to happen. With Adam Jones is that with Adam Jones, you know, he's that guy. He's the hometown face. I think it's more likely Adam Jones gets traded than Manny Machado, but I don't think the Orioles are going to be, you know, I don't think they're going to feel very good about trading a hometown player not a hometown player but a homegrown player like adam jones who's been there for so long if anybody gets traded from the baltimore orioles and i'll give you a name it's zach Britton. 
He may not be fully healthy yet, but I think as soon as he goes out there and he shows that he's healthy, you're going to have the Astros asking for him. You're going to, you know, you're going to see the Cubs asking for him. You're going to see a lot of teams that need relief help knocking on the Orioles' door for Zach Britton. If I had to guess anywhere, I'm more than sure that the Astros pour all their chips in to get Britton when he shows that he's healthy. Now, I, I certainly think the Astros, they're on my list to add a certain pitcher as well. Uh, it's not Zach Britton for me. It's Brad Hand. I think the Padres, although they're not looking to deal him, and their asking price is going to be extremely high, I think Brad Hand offers you a little bit more of safety security because of the fact that he's been healthy. Um, obviously, the only concern when it comes to Brad Hand and is you know, he's been playing at Petco Park for forever, and, you know, that that helps when the ball's not able to get out of there. But reverse teams like the Dodgers at times, and the Rockies, and the Diamondbacks, and top offenses, and you're still playing extremely well when you come in out there for the save. I think Houston needs to make a move just like you said. Add some bullpen pieces. Uh, you've made all the right moves so far. You've gone out there and made trades, bid trades to get Justin Verlander, bid trades to get Derek Cole. I think you have to do one more and add another bullpen piece or two. And I think the Padres, like the Orioles, offer you that uh, where you can maybe trade for one or two bullpen pitchers. And I think that could be the difference maker for Houston uh, come the line when it, uh, versing the Yankees. So I'm looking at Brad Hand uh, for the Orioles. I can't see them not trading Manny Machado. A first-round pick in a compensation draft at that point, assuming that he doesn't go to a top-10 team that fin- um, for the bottom of the draft, which I don't think he will. Uh, you're talking about, what, a 35th pick in a draft at that point for Manny Machado, or maybe you can get an extra piece or two, and you can build for a closer future. Not that they haven't tried to screw their future up with signing guys like Chris Davis, but I can't see them saying, no, let's keep Manny Machado and let's lose every little value we have of him left because he's on a tear right now. He's going to make a ton of money. He's not resigning with Baltimore. I don't know if the Yankees are going to be able to fit him unless he wants to play third base again, but... I, I certainly can't see the Orioles not trading him. Let me give you two starting pitchers, and I have to give you two that play for the same team, the New York Mets. Jacob ah. DeGrom, Noah Syndergaard. You knew it was coming. You, I knew it was you coming. You knew it was coming. So. <laughs> All right. What do the Mets do right here? Other than shoot themselves in the foot like every other minute and then shoot the fan base in the foot for holding on to any dear life, what do you do with Jacob DeGrom and Noah Syndergaard? You know, honestly, in this situation, I hate saying this, but you need to trade one of them. I'm not saying both. I think you can still hang on to one of them. I think you should still hang on to Noah Syndergaard really only because Jacob DeGrom has all the value right now. Yes, you still have Syndergaard's contract, plenty of years left of control on there. But, you know, Syndergaard does have an injury history now too, right? Every single year, it almost seems like Syndergaard is visiting the DL. 
that's going to not allow you to bring back a top prospect, in my opinion. If you trade Jacob DeGrom, you have a chance to ask for someone's top prospect in that system. And there's a lot of teams that can use Jacob DeGrom. There's a lot of teams that need an ace at the top of their rotation. Yankees don't need an ace, but they need a starting pitcher. And the Yankees have a huge, huge arm system that you can ask for a lot from. You can't get Glaber Torres, probably, but there's still plenty of names that you can definitely grab from the New York Yankees. The Milwaukee Brewers, they need an ace starting pitcher. They made it very clear that 2018, they're going all in, right? They signed Lorenzo Cain. They bring in Christian Yelich, but they have no top pitching. They can definitely ask for that. Their top prospect is a second baseman who's lighting it up on fire right now in double A. The Mets can definitely use a second baseman who has a high on base percentage. And then on top of that, you know, got teams like Seattle, you know, that needs a starting pitcher. Now, those teams are probably going to look for cheaper options in J.A. Happ or whatever, but it's worth dangling the Grom out there if it means bringing back a better haul for the Mets' future. Because let's face it, the Mets, yes, they were, they were a World Series team in 2015, but this is a really unhealthy bunch of, you know, unhealthy bunch. They're a little on the older side when it comes to the offense. But besides the pitching, the Mets really don't have anything going for them future-wise on the offensive side of the ball. If it means picking up a second baseman of the future or another outfielder you can plug in, so be it. You need to trade Jacob DeGrom if it benefits the team. And it really depends on who you're getting back. But I feel like there's definitely a lot of teams out there that would line up for Jacob DeGrom. So I'm going to take the flip side on this one, actually. Uh, Resign an extension uh, for Jacob DeGrom. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed I'm saying these words. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, I, you know, I'm usually the one that says that. Yeah, you, usually <laughs> this is a reversed moment for us. It's... It's been a while. Maybe maybe we traded. Uh, but no, you look at the Mets and say, what can they get? And, and what value can they get from DeGrom? A ton. Nobody can deny that. He's got, what, one of the lowest ERAs in all of baseball? No way. He's Cy Young right now, in my opinion. He's not from Matt Scherzer. I can't take it over that. <laughs> uh, I'm still giving it to Scherzer. I'm not that much of a Met homie. <laughs> uh, but, I am. No shame. <laughs> no worries. Uh, look, if you trade for away Jacob DeGrom, you are then saying we're not competing till 2022. Because trading Jacob DeGrom away when he's under control for the next, what, two years till 2020? How do you tell your fan base, we traded your, our Cy Young pitcher our ace of our team. But don't worry, next year we're going to compete and win more games. No, no, don't worry. The next year after that, we're going to be even better. No, no, it doesn't work like that. Nobody in their right mind is going to believe that. It is. Well, you do, you do know that the Mets got into this mess in the first place by listening to their fan base, right? By signing you in a suspicious, by going all the Hey, don't throw me in that one. <laughs> and, and, and bringing and bringing guys in like Todd Frazier what? and as Drupal Cabrera and and all these other dinosaurs that are still on the field, right? <laughs> because instead of rebuilding fully, don't get me wrong, the Mets made the World Series in 2015, but that wasn't their best team available. No, there was still you, time to go in the rebuild process, and the Mets cut that rebuild process short because they listened to fans like me and said, "Go for it, we want a World Series." So what did they do? They poured all their money in veteran players, and they didn't keep rebuilding. And now there's no offense to match the pitching. And that's where I'm going to say you're wrong. There's offense. Unfortunately, it's really bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's not good. 
you have Michael Conforto, you have Brandon Nimmo, you have Jay Bruce, who's on what, another two more years after this. You have Joanna Cespedes on what, at least another year after this, maybe two. I don't really know his contract offhand, but all I do know is there are four outfield positions for th- four outfield for players three for three positions. You can't trade Jacob DeGrom for an outfield prospect and say, hey, we're going to have a guy compete next year because he's a star pal- player. It's not going to work. You can't trade for a first baseman because, hey, I believe in Dominic Smith and I want to see the kid play actually on first base. And even if he doesn't work out, the Mets do have a minor league option, so you're basically getting the same thing at that point. You can't trade for a shortstop, although it seems like Callahan's replaced Terry Collins by just throwing another prospect that's top in the doghouse, like Terry Collins used to do to, like, what, Juan Ladaris, Michael Conforto. It, the list goes on for how many guys he threw in the dart house, but it seems like Ahmed Rosario is there if he's being benched for Jose Reyes and his, I don't know, can we get a high schooler to have the same batting average with that many at-bats? Maybe it will be higher. It, it's not going to work at shortstop. At third base, maybe David Wright eventually comes back. Here's me hoping for player coach. But... <laughs> But assuming that that's not the case, well, Todd Frazier is the player that's going to be at third base next season. That's not an option. So what are we trading Jacob DeGrom for? A second baseman? Assuming that the Mets don't re-sign as Drupal Cabrera because you know that's what the Mets will do. After he <laughs> I know they will. I'm trying to oh, avoid yeah. that. You know the Mets are bringing back as Drupal Cabrera after what the season he's had. That's just what the Mets do. Just ask Jay Bruce. It doesn't matter if they trade him, they'll bring him back. So where are the Mets going to add a piece for offense? They're not. And that's where I'm going to say it's either you're going to tell your fan base you're not able to compete for the next three-plus years after really just getting to the World Series. Are the Mets going to go anywhere this year? Yes or no? no? No, are they going to go anywhere? Are they going to go anywhere next year? There's a possibility of that. What's the difference between this year and, and next year? I have more faith. <laughs> you have more crosses hanging up in your home. You're more, uh, more, uh, more some witchcraft regimen to make them stay healthy. This is an unhealthy group of guys, an unhealthy, undurable group of guys. That really it makes no sense. Cespedes is never around. You know, you have five, you have eight outfielders for three spots. You know, first of all, shame on the Mets for not believing in Brendan Nimmo, that really forced them to sign Jay Bruce because you could be looking at an outfield of Conforto and Nimmo every single day. What happens when Cespedes comes back? Who's sitting? None of these guys really deserve to be benched. So who, who do you put out there when Cespedes comes back? Because now Jose you know Batista. Cespedes has to play. Well, he's probably gone. He's probably finding a new job when Cespedes comes back. Really? Because you think that it will be Nimmo. I will bet you it will be Nimmo. <laughs> I know, and it will be. And it will be really sad because Brendan Nimmo has earned his spot to play every single day, and it's shame on the Mets for not believing in Nimmo. But this, this is—you've made your bed. This is what it is, and if you're going to trade away a star gem pitcher for now, here's the thing: what are we trading away the star gem pitcher for? We're trading him away for prospects three years from now. Where you can say goodbye to Jay Bruce, say goodbye to you on Cespedes, say goodbye to Todd Frazier, say hello, Coach David Wright, and 
what are you going to try and add? Those hitters and a pitching prospect. You know, the whole pitching prospect that can become a Jacob DeGrom. A DeGrom you already have on your team. And that's where I'm going to say you don't need to trade him. Because you already have that top star. So if you're going to trade for a pitching prospect that you hope to have in three years from now, you might as well just extend the pitcher that you have right now. Because I do think the Mets have a decent enough farm, a high enough IQ, to fix this within the next year or two. And if they are going to try and fix it, then you need to drum on this roster come that year. You need Syndergaard on that roster. You need a lot more on that roster as well, but I, I'm, I'm not going to be able to say that they're going to have a, a chance, a snowball's chance in hell without those two to begin with. And I still think you need to try and keep guys like Zach Wheeler because you keep bringing in the wrong players and you keep not giving the right ones the chance. And I think that's the biggest issue for the Mets. Your thoughts? Um, you know, I, I don't know. I just, I really, I really feel like the Mets didn't rebuild right the first time oh, and they could probably, did. they could probably benefit from tearing everything down again, the starting over, even though I don't want to see that as a Mets fan, but, and really you can't sell me that things are going to get better next year with the same exact team that's on the field this year. Well, that was the issue with last year. They made it the same exact team as the year prior and thought, Hey, you know, we're the same team. That won X amount of games, but we're going to try and win Z. Just ask Baltimore that. Look at that roster. It and look where Baltimore like is at now. And that's the point. So do you want the mess to end up that way? No, my because the lucky part for them is they didn't try and sign Chris Davis to a seven-year deal. They only no, signed they, these all guys they did to three. Was, <laughs> all they did was sign Cespedes to a contract, which I was all for. And they signed Bruce to a contract, which I was against, and now clogged their outfield so they can't play guys like Dom Smith and Pete Alonso at the same time. At least they got rid of Adrian Gonzalez. <laughs> they did, but even Gonzalez was playing well. He didn't deserve to get cut. <laughs> you can't win with the Mets. Yeah, Met fans, we just cannot win. That's in general. like In the standings, in the games, and... God sakes in our and the team. Let's but. face it, Nick. If the Mets would have lost tonight and the Marlins won, the Mets would have the worst record in the National League against a team like the Marlins, who are trying to lose on purpose. <laughs> Credit them. <laughs> well, they're not doing it right. If that's the case. Which one? The Mets or the Marlins? Both. You want who's not doing it right? The Reds. If they were trying to lose on purpose, they're seven and three in their last ten games. Mets need to take a book from that one. Um, not not a page, the entire book. Plus the index and the appendix. A couple of thesauruses, the dictionary. But no, it's it it is bad for Mets fans. All right, a uh, couple pitchers: Jay Happ and Cole Hamels. You see them getting traded. Uh, Jay Happ, definitely. I think he's one of those guys where Toronto has nothing to lose. Um, Toronto's kind of stuck in the middle where it's like we could make a strong push, but we can also fall out of it really quickly. Um, you know, Donaldson had another setback. I think, you know, the Blue Jays need to take advantage of Jay Happ being a good pitcher on high demand, right? Because a lot of teams don't want to overpay for someone like Jacob DeGrom 
or or someone else that's out there at a higher price, right? They want that cheap, low deal. So you'll have the Yankees knocking on their door. They have prospects that they can send them. You're going to have Seattle knocking on J-Hap's door. Um, you're going to have a lot of teams who are interested because J-Hap is cheaper than a lot of the other top pitchers, but these teams can still give something up for them. So I think definitely for J-Hap, Cole Hamels is a little bit iffy. Um, you know, he's a little on the downside of his career. He still has something left, in my opinion, though. But I can't really see teams lining up to sign Cole Hamels. Maybe if J-Hap gets off the board, whoever doesn't get him and still doesn't want to pay a big price for Jacob DeGrom, maybe they turn to Cole Hamels. But if you're going to make me choose one of them, I say J-Hap, not both. You know, a lot of teams can use left-handed pitchers. A left-handed starter, the Phillies. I, I think the Braves, even though they have a lot of starters, they could always I mean, to add one. The Yankees you mentioned the Phillies. I think the Phillies and Cole Hamels make sense, but other than that, I don't see it anywhere else happening. I, I, I like a couple different fits for a left-handed pitcher. Uh, it always seems like high contract, questionable moments. The L.A. Dodgers are for you. Uh, so, <laughs> Hey, you're left-handed. The Dodgers want you. <laughs> there's a lot of different options, I think, for either pitcher. Uh, and neither team doing real well. I think they both could get traded. I uh, Really, one of the teams that stands out to me is the New York Yankees. I think they need a playoff pitcher. I, I like Cole Hamels as that type of pitcher. Even though he's having a rough season, they may try and go with the safety choice of J-Hap. Uh, but I think with Brian Cashman, it's usually what the cheaper option will be. He's going to go Tate. So whichever one he can grab first. Uh, let me give you another big-name left-handed pitcher. How about Madison Bumgarner? No way. <laughs> Next question. No way. No, I mean, no. seriously, I don't I don't see him getting traded. I mean, the Giants are still in a position where they can still compete. Um, you know, they brought in McCutcheon. They brought in Longoria. It's not working out the best, but it's kind of like what you said with the Mets. Who am I trading Bumgarner for? Longoria, Longoria's at third base. Crawford's at second. Joe Panic is a good second baseman. At first base, you know, there's a little bit of a hole. Uh, so maybe you go there. But the outfield is pretty much set in a good defensive outfielder. They're not superstar outfielders, but good defensive outfield. And for the Giants, if you trade Madison Bumgarner, you're really setting yourself back in that rotation alone. There's not a lot of guys once it goes from Madison Bumgarner to whoever's up next. So if you're the Giants and you really try, really try to make a strong push, you need to keep Madison Bumgarner because there's really no other options of who else you're going to get to replace him. All right. Last one. And this is not going to be a player. Give me three teams that are going to be buyers. And there's a lot of different teams trying to compete right now, but three teams that you definitely see are going to add a, a bid player in your mind. Uh, one, the Milwaukee Brewers. I think it's this is a no-doubter. I think they need a big-time starting pitcher, whether it's Jacob DeGrom, whether it's someone like you said, a Cole Hamels, who has had history of being a top pitcher before. Um, I think the Brewers definitely need it. This is the reason why they got Lorenzo Cain. It's the reason why they got Christian Yelich. They need a big-time starting pitcher to really help them, especially once they get to that playoff mindset as well, too. The Houston Astros, they really need a new closer. Ken Giles is not the answer. Um, Kelvin Herrera is already off the board. Kudos to Herrera as early as they can because he was going to be a very high-priced item at the deadline for anybody really looking for a reliever out there. So kudos to the Nationals for doing that, but I can really see the Astros really overpaying for a reliever too, which kind of sucks, right? You don't want to overpay for a one-inning guy, but I can really see the Astros 
overpaying for a closer because they like having Chris Davinsky in that role where it's a 7th inning, 8th inning guy. They don't like him closing. So they really want to get a true closer to pitch the ninth inning, whether it's Zach Britton or somebody else. I can really see them being buyers at the deadline as well, too. And for my third team, I'm going to go you know, a little bit of a, you know, a cop-out here. But obviously, the, the L.A. Dodgers, I think this is a team that's always pressured to win. They have the prospects for it. They can always use another starting pitcher. They can always use another bat in that lineup. Um, this is a team that's had a lot of injuries. Corey Seager's out for the year. But for the Dodgers, you know, this is a team that, you know, winning is, you know, losing is not an option for the Dodgers. They have to compete. They can't just lay down and take shot after shot after being hurt. So the Dodgers definitely will get someone. It may not be an impact player, but they will be buyers and they will try and help their team somehow. All right. So I'm going to take, I'm going to try and take a few different teams other than the ones that you named. Uh, I, I do think all three of those teams make a lot of sense to buy. I, I think all three are trying to compete, looking to win the divisions and further than that. But I'm going to start with the Atlanta Braves. This is a team I feel like you know everything's going right right now. You've got the division lead. You've got the Phillies and the Nationals close on your heel. You have a good starting pitching team. You have a great bullpen. I'm going to say that the Braves are going to trade for a third baseman. And I'm really looking at Mike Moustakis here. But overall, you look at a lot of different teams that are right now struggling in the MLB, in the standings, they all have in common a really good third baseman. And Mike Moustak just stands out to me the most because the Braves do have Rio Ruiz in the minors, who's expected to come up probably next year. Maybe if he's able to get up in August or September. But I think the Braves are going to try and say, hey, Let's go and try and make it to the playoffs this year. Let's give Rio Ruiz a little bit more time. Let's add a playoff caliber bat, a guy who does not strike out, which is so valuable into the playoffs. And I think he's just a perfect fit with Atlanta. So I think Atlanta's going to be that my team I'm going to put as number one to be making a move before the trade deadline. Second, I'm going to add the New York Yankees. I think they're going to add a starting pitcher. It's going to be a very tight race between the Yankees and the Boston Red Sox the entire way. Right now, the division is just separated by half a game, and we're talking about two teams, 52-25, and 53-27. And, and what's the difference? Well, they have two of the best records in the MLB, and only the Houston Astros are in that 50-win column as well. And for the Yankees and Red Sox, I think they're both looking at it and say, hey, we don't want to be a wild card team. We're going to have one of the best records in baseball at the end of the year. We don't want to put ourselves in that one-game elimination. We want to compete and win a championship. And for both teams, they're trying to say, we don't want Luis Servino, We don't want Chris Sale being starters in that game and then not having them for the fullest in that first round. So I, I think the Yankees are going to try and make a move, try and add a starting pitcher, especially a left-handed starter. There are plenty out there for the Yankees to take, and they have a ton of prospects if they want to try to trade one away. And my third, I'm going to do what you did. I'm going to choose a top-out one, but it's the Boston Red Sox. 
because I think they're going to have the same mindset as the New York Yankees. They're going to try and add another player or two. I really think they would love to add another piece to the back of that bullpen as a setup role. Joe Kelly's good, but I really don't trust him when it comes to those late-game situations. I think they really just want another piece that can get to Craig Kimball. Even adding another starter wouldn't be the worst in the world for the Boston Red Sox. I love Chris Sale. He's dominant. David Price, when he's healthy, he's great. But as you just get further into that Boston Red Sox rotation, there's just a few too many question marks for me. And I think season one, you want to have a little bit more consistency. I don't really love Rick Porcello, though he's a three-starter. Stephen Wright went back on a DL. Drew Pollerance is hurt. And what's our other starter? Eduardo Rodriguez. So there's not much to love when it comes to the starting rotation of the Boston Red Sox. When you're talking about a 50-plus win team right now, you got to add another starter if you want to try and compete full season with the New York Yankees because it can come to those division games to be that difference maker, and you're going to want that extra starter because that could be key. So I'm looking at the Boston Red Sox as my third team, two of the three from the American League East, but in that division it's going to be a tight fight the entire way through. And with every podcast episode as we've done for the first 28 and we'll do for our 29th, we always have Beardback and our Dude and Dunce of the Week. So a couple for Beardback as we start from 1944. The New York Giants, the Brooklyn Dodgers, and the New York Yankees played against each other in a sit-sitting contest in a War Bonds fundraiser over... 50,000 people watched the game. The final score was the Dodgers 5, Yankees 1, and the Giants 0. Uh, strange little outcome on that game as they would just alternate throughout innings to try and get through. Uh, Earl Wilson of the Boston Red Sox in 1962 pitched a no-hitter. The Red Sox would win the game 2-0 against the Los Angeles Angels. Oh, and Earl Winston hit a home run during his no-hitter, so the only thing I think that could top it is in 1970, Frank Robinson of the Baltimore Orioles hit two grand slams against the Washington Senators in a 12-2 win. So those are our three beard bats for, again, the date being June 26th on our, our Sarasa and Beard podcast episode 29, and course we always have our dude and dunce of the week and let me say it was really tough to figure out who to pitch for my dude of the week and I was trying to figure how will I play this out will I go all the way back and give it to like justify for winning a triple crown will I choose a guy like Mike Trout for being red hot for a week prior there wasn't anything to truly love yesterday so the one I'm gonna give it to is Jacob, and I don't really know if I'm going to butcher his name or not, but E. Ramy, uh, a Los Angeles Lakers fan, I'm giving it to, who has paid for over 40 billboards all around <laughs> the city. And uh, Jose, you're laughing, so I think you know the story. Uh, he's trying to get Paul George to join the Los Angeles Lakers, so he's created six different designs out of these 40 billboards, all with the hashtag PG2LA, 
representing Paul George to L.A. And three of these sits billboards also feature LeBron James, who he's tried to put out these billboards since March featuring LeBron James. So I'm going to give it to the fanhood of the season ticket holder for going all out there because you're talking about if it's just a minimum of $5,000 per billboard, that's $200,000 this guy's putting out on billboards just to try and recruit players who don't have a care in the world about the billboards he's putting out there and have no effect on them. So good for you for having all that money to throw around. But I'm going to give it to really the true fan of the game. Uh, and he is my dude of the week. And Jose, who is our dunce of the week? Our dunce of the week is the end. Everybody who got to vote for the NBA awards last night for the <laughs> fact that Donovan Mitchell did not win Rookie of the Year is clearly, clearly, clearly very, very upsetting to me. You had a guy who got paid. Ben Simmons took a paycheck, which means he was in the league for a first year. He was not the Rookie of the Year. His first year counts, hurt or not. The 76ers held him back. He should have played at some point last year. Doesn't matter. You were on an NBA team. You were looking over game plans. You are a rookie. Donovan Mitchell was robbed of the award. And if you would have told me that the Utah Jazz would have been in the playoffs as a fourth seed after losing Gordon Hayward the year prior and trading away George, George Hill, I would have called you a liar. Donovan Mitchell's impact on the Jazz was way bigger than Simmons on the Sixers. Um, so Donovan Mitchell, you should have been Rookie of the Year. My dunce of the week, the people who voted for those NBA awards. And why is there an NBA award show to begin with? Weird. Did you wind up watching a lot of the NBA award show? No, because why is there an NBA award show? <laughs> <laughs> the baseball one is the like blandest thing possible. It just shows three people on a camera and it's like, oh, you won, let's have a conversation with you. Screw the That's other how two. it should be, while the other two just sit there awkwardly. No, they just go off camera. They're gone. <laughs> they, they, their, their time of the, uh, their moment it was gone. Disappeared. <laughs> and, alright. Any last words for you, Jose? Uh, no, I'm actually pretty good, surprisingly. <laughs> Somehow the Mets will find a way to disappoint us. I know they won tonight uh, in 10 innings, but they'll get there. Uh, they, they'll, they'll find a way. I mean, it's, it's, it's June, so I mean, we're, we're coming up on that point of the season where they'll just completely tank out. It's fine. Tomorrow's another day. Yep. Uh, I'm, I'm sure like, one of the keys will be Wilmer Flores, what do you go, two for th- five with three RBIs, so you know he's getting benched. You know, for sure. You know he's getting benched tomorrow. And of course, uh, Jose Reyes was playing one for four. Yeah. He actually increased his average. I will say this: I finally saw The Incredibles too. Yes. To me, wasn't as good as the first one. Oh. I felt I felt like I had too high expectations, but it was a really good movie nonetheless. I saw it on Thursday last week. I loved it. Oh, you're a brave man. <laughs> no, it was it was it was great. I've been looking forward to that movie for so long. That that was that was my highlight of the week. Easily, easily the highlight of the week. And again, thank you so much for listening to Sarasa and a Beard podcast, episode twenty nine. Once again, I am Nick Sarasso. and I'm a talking beard, Jose Rivera. And you have been listening to Sarasa and a Beard podcast, episode twenty nine. Enjoy your night. <laughs>